one year ago. One year ago, I was actually kind of in the same place I am right now, speaking to a camera into a relatively empty sanctuary. One year ago, there was probably about a dozen people here, members of our worship team, uh, members of our staff, members of the AV crew who were all trying to figure out what is it like to record a service and broadcast that out to our community who won't be physically here with us. And I know, at least for myself, I was confident at the time that this was gonna be a short-term thing. So it was actually kind of a fun experiment that we were doing, because I thought, oh, for sure we'll be back by Easter. And by Easter, I meant Easter 2020, not Easter 2021. So yeah, it's been a year. But in the line of the famous hymn, "'Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home." And so here we are at this one-year juncture, and we want to give thanks to God for what he's done. There's the story in Joshua chapter 4, where the nation of Israel is crossing over the Jordan River on dry ground, and God instructs Joshua to have some of the leaders of his people pick some stones up from the middle of this dry riverbed and bring them up onto the shore and set them up as a memorial. Now, we're not gonna do anything that dramatic here, um, but our pastoral team did think that it'd be a good idea to share some of, our, uh, some of the gifts that we have discovered over the course of this past year as a way to, of marking uh, the way that God has brought us safe thus far. So I'm gonna begin and then different members of our team will share and then we're each gonna actually read a section of a poem um, before I begin the sermon this morning. When I think about a gift of this past year, um, I would say prayer has been one of the gifts for me. And I don't say that to sound overly spiritual, uh, but one of the things that's been really difficult for me has been being so disconnected from you, from my church community. Um, but I felt compelled to pray for our church community more regularly. And it's actually been a really good gift for me because even though some of you I haven't seen in a year, others it's been months, a lot of you it's been just uh, over video, um, but being able to pray for our, my church community every morning has been a way to help me feel and stay connected to you. So that's been a real gift that I found during this season. For me, as I reflect on this past year, one of the unexpected gifts has been I actually moved back home with my parents this year. And while unexpected, not something I would have um, maybe planned for, uh, it's been a real gift to get to spend that time with them, to have casual conversations over the dinner table, and to get to know them uh, kind of in a new way. And so that's been a real gift for me. One of the gifts of COVID for me has been the opportunity to slow down, uh, to simply do less and to re reduce external busyness and to use that time instead for thinking and contemplating. Uh, this was not really a year of reading for me as that did not come easily to me in 2020. But even that opened up space for deeper reflection and for processing ideas. And going forward, it's my hope to protect those spaces uh, where those things were able to happen. One of the things I've been thankful for over this season has been seeing my family grow. I have two um, twin nephews that were just born through a relatively complicated pregnancy, but everyone is safe and happy, and I just am really glad for that. And I have a, an unexpected nephew being born sometime in August out in Calgary, and my family spread out all over the place, but it's still nice to get to see it grow and um, be a part um, digitally of seeing these new ones grow up. One of the gifts of this last year has been the way that my definition of what love looks like has been expanded. This year, simple acts of love have felt more intentional and deliberate. And when I received these acts of love, I know how much thought and planning has gone into many of them, which has somehow made these simple acts feel so much more significant and meaningful. This year, 
love has looked like. A drive-by birthday greeting, a meal being dropped off, a call in the middle of the day, handwritten notes in the mail, my family remembering to water my plants that they know I so desperately want to keep alive, an empathetic smile from a stranger, reminding me that we really are all in this together. I'm thankful for this time that has allowed me to receive and give these acts of love, these gifts, with a new lens. Trust in the Slow Work of God by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so, I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could easily be today what time this is to say grace and circumstances acting on your own goodwill will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give God the benefit of believing that the divine hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. So in light of the words of this poem, let us pray. Lord, I give thanks for the way that you are able to work, even and maybe especially in the midst of circumstances that we can't control and we can't predict. God, help us to be present to this moment. Help us to trust you as we continue to move forward and help us to remember and reflect on the many gifts that we can find even in the most difficult of seasons. In Christ's name, amen. This morning's parable follows on the coattails of a comment made by Jesus at the end of the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 19, reminding us of the value of reading just a little more broadly. So Matthew 19 ends this way, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's also the last line of this morning's parable that we heard read for us only inverted. So the last will be first and the first will be last. But where did this saying come from? Why was Jesus talking about the last being first? Well, a little earlier in Matthew chapter 19, the story set up for it this way. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Well, Jesus responds, well, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And he proceeds to list a number of the famous 10 commandments. And then he adds an additional commandment from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. The man says that he's kept all of these commandments and he makes one of the beautiful mistakes of the spiritual life, which is to ask a question, what do I still lack? It kind of reminds me of a situation you've probably found yourself in. Uh, maybe you're doing a group project at school or maybe it's you're in a meeting room uh, with some colleagues or coworkers and there's a lot of ideas going around and you say, hey, I have another idea. And then what ends up happening is that you are the one who's told to be responsible for enacting this new idea. If you just would have kept your mouth shut, you would have proceeded and you wouldn't have had all this extra work. Well, that's kind of what was what, like what this man does, right? He's sitting here and Jesus is like, you know what? It sounds to me like you're doing everything that's required in order to obtain eternal life. And then the guy's like, well, what do I still lack? And Jesus is like, well, since you asked for it, I'll tell you. And we read this in Matthew 19, 21 and 22. 
Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. The conversation between Jesus and his followers that uh, follows right here is an acknowledgement of just how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus holds out a candle of hope, saying, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so this is the interaction that happens right before Jesus tells us the parable about the workers in the vineyard. And he begins this way. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, much like last week, understanding first century currency is going to be helpful for us in this story. So the landowner goes out and he offers to pay them a denarius. Basically, this was a day's pay. So the denarius was equal to the amount of labor for one day's work. The first part of the parable, it's about as easy to understand as anything that Jesus ever said. An honest day's work for an honest day's pay. It's that simple. There's nothing tricky, nothing hidden here. That's what the landowner offers to these workers. Now, most of us would probably acknowledge and agree that there are a number of valid reasons that a person cannot work and that we should take care of one another accordingly. Maybe a person is not physically or mentally able to work and we wouldn't say, well, because you can't work, you shouldn't be paid. We would want them to be cared for. Um, there are seasons of life that we go through. When someone has a new baby, for a parent to be able to stay home and care for that baby, we would say, no, we, there should be some kind of um, payment or some kind of compensation for them to be able to stay home. So there are cir circumstances where, where we would go against this, this saying that an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. But that being said, most of us, I think, would also agree that if a person is not willing to do any work, if they're not willing to put in an honest day's work, then they should not receive an honest day's pay. If someone just says, you know what, I feel like just backpacking around for a while, um, but I would appreciate you to continue paying me, that's not gonna fly very much. Now there's something about this little saying, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, that is rooted deeply in our understanding of how the world works. People should get what they deserve. I should get what I deserve. Now, of course, things rarely work out this way. Every day there are millions of people who do not get what they deserve. There are people born into poverty. They did nothing to deserve that, and chances are their parents actually didn't do a whole lot to deserve it either. At the other end of the spectrum, there are people who make tens of millions of dollars because they can uh, design an app or throw a ball. Uh, that just, they're not really getting what they deserve either. Sometimes much less than they deserve, sometimes much more than they deserve. Or think about health. Some people contract an illness and it, they didn't do anything to deserve this at all, and yet they find their health deteriorating. Other people have wonderful health for a long time, and they may actually have a lifestyle that doesn't deserve that. So there are ways that fly in the face of this. But we can't move on in this parable until we acknowledge that fairness is one of our baseline expectations in life. So with these caveats aside, as much as possible, people should get what they deserve. So as the story begins, we have this landowner who's going out to find some employees. Now, to us, it seems like an odd way to find workers, right? He decides to just wander out into the common square and see if there's anyone available to work. Well, that's the way that it worked back then for common laborers. They needed some extra people on hand. Who's available today? Come and work for me. Uh, now, that's not how we do it. We do it job posting boards and online websites and stuff like that. Um, but this is how this landowner would have found the employment he needed for the day. 
But this is only the start of the story. You see, three hours later, he realizes, for some reason or the other, that he actually needs more workers. So he wanders into the market, and he finds some people doing nothing. This is what Jesus says in the story. There, he finds a bunch of people who are doing nothing, and he gives them a job. Now, the last few months, my kids have been applying for jobs. Sophia has sent numerous, numerous resumes out there. Uh, she's applied for a lot of jobs. Finally, recently, she landed a job for the summer, which we're excited about. Jude has recently started applying for jobs as well. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, he submitted an application online. A couple of days later, he went in in person to meet the manager. A couple of days later, he made a phone call to follow up. So we're putting all this effort in to try to find a job. Um, now, I was just thinking about how easy it would be for them if the bar was as low as it was for these workers in Jesus' parable. So there are a bunch of people who are standing around doing nothing and someone comes up to them and says, hey, do you want a job? Like imagine if I said to my kids, all you gotta do is just go hang, hang out at the skate park or hang out at the rink downtown Kitchener and someone will walk up to you and give you a job. Like, wouldn't it be great if it was that easy? But the landowner continues on this pattern. Again, for some reason, he decides, actually, I need more workers. And he goes back down at noon. And then he goes back down at three o'clock. And then he goes back down at five o'clock at the very end of the day to find people to come in and finish the job that they had started. And again, Jesus uses the phrase that he found some people who were standing around. So this is just like the leftover people doing nothing, making no effort to, to find employment, and they end up being employed by this landowner. Matthew 20, verse 8, we read that when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them for their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now, what would you expect to happen here? I asked the same question last week, and I'm going to try to get you to think about the same scenario, that you've never heard this parable before, that all you've heard about this parable is what I've said so far, that this guy goes and he hires his people, a bunch of people at different times of the day. What would you expect to happen when they doled out the paychecks at the cash at the end of the day? Anyone who's thinking about this logically would say, well, how much did the first person make? So let's say they worked 10 hours and they made 150 bucks. You do a little division, you'd say, okay, that's $15 an hour. So that means that the person who was hired with only one hour left in the day, they'd receive an envelope with $15 in it. The person who was hired with only three hours left in the day, they'd get an envelope with $45 in it, and so on down. And finally, the person who's been there the whole 10 hours would get their 150 bucks. That's what you would expect, because that would be fair. That would be every employee getting what they deserve. Now, what do we do with this? Because that's not what happens in this story, right? The landowner does something very different. He decides to pay everyone the same wage. Everyone from the person who showed up an hour before they closed, three hours before they closed, and the person who worked 10, 10 hours that day walked away with an envelope with the same amount of cash in it. Now that's not easy to swallow. Easy for the person who only worked an hour to swallow, that goes down like Gatorade. But for the person who'd only been there three hours, they look and say, well, why did that person get the same as me? And maybe it goes down like dishwater. The person who'd been there since noon probably feels like vinegar going down their throat. But the person who had been there since the start of the day, well, it's like sulfuric acid burning the throat. I cannot swallow this. This is not fair. I am not getting what I deserve. And so they reach out and they complain to the landowner. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Fyodor Dostoevsky in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, has one of the characters say this, if there's anything that would immediately cool my active love for mankind, that one thing is ingratitude. In short, 
I work for pay and demand my pay at once. Otherwise, I'm unable to love anyone. Now, can you relate to this at least a little bit? Have you ever felt like your efforts have been cheapened? Like your hard work wasn't valued? Like your blood, sweat, and tears are not appreciated? And if so, can you remember how it made you feel about the people around you who seem to be treated differently? So maybe you can identify with these early morning workers and how they would have been feeling when everyone was paid the same amount. The interesting thing is that the workers who spoke out, they actually did get their pay. They got what they deserve. They got an honest day's wage. But somehow they felt like their efforts had been watered down because others' efforts were elevated. So they did what all of us do in similar situations. They grumbled. There's something about being in an unfair situation alongside other people. Our complaints somehow seem more legitimate to us, don't they? Chris Hadfield, a Canadian astronaut, writes in his book, An, Astronaut, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, comparing notes on how unfair or difficult or ridiculous something is does promote bonding. And sometimes that's why the griping continues, because it's reinforcing an us-against-the-world feeling. Very quickly, though, the warmth of unity morphs to the sourness of resentment, which makes hardship seem even more intolerable and doesn't help get the job done. Whining is the antithesis of expeditionary behavior, which is all about rallying the troops around a common goal. Now, from the perspective of a worker, the goal in the story was to be paid fairly, but the common goal was bringing in the harvest, and that's what the landowner was most concerned about. Now, I'm not a farmer, but I understand that when a crop is ready, it needs to be gathered in. So I'm not sure what the landowner knew. Maybe he knew that the temperature was about to plummet, or maybe there was a storm that was brewing, or maybe he knew that the grapes were at their peak ripeness, and if they weren't gathered that day, they risked being spoiled the next day. I'm not sure, but there was some reason that he needed more and more people to come and work in his vineyard, and that's why he kept going back to the market time again, hiring more people, bringing them in. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and I was letting him know that I was speaking about this parable, and he said, oh, he said, well, uh, if you want to take a different spin on it, you could talk about the, how this is the Bible really giving support for a free market economy. That really, when it comes down to it, it's about supply and demand, and at the end of the day, the landowner needed labor, and uh, the, there were only these people left to work, and so we had to pay the going rate for their market. And anyways, he had kind of a laugh about how that's clearly not what the Bible is teaching at all. But of course, we can read it wrong if we choose to. But what did the landowner say in response to this criticism that he had not treated people fairly? Well, he answered them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Now take your pay and go. When I was reading this over and again this week, I had this image of a scene from the classic movie Napoleon Dynamite, where Napoleon goes to work, I believe he's like catching chickens or something like this, and at the end of the day, the guy pays him in this big mound of coins. And so Napoleon goes home and he sits at his table and he counts all these coins, and then he kind of lifts his head up and he's like, six dollars? That's like a dollar an hour. Now, Napoleon got ripped off. Like, you should be paid a lot more than a dollar an hour to catch chickens. Um, but the guys in our parable, they did not get ripped off. They got paid exactly what they would have expected to get paid. They got paid a totally fair wage in the situation. But even a casual reader of this parable knows 
that since Jesus started the parable off by saying, for the kingdom of heaven is like, this isn't really about wages and it's not really about vineyards. So I'm going to invite you to try this with me. Make a shift in your mind, if you can right now, from this being a story about workers and a landowner and a vineyard to being a story about people who are following Jesus and are concerned about whether or not they are going to be rewarded for their hard work. Now, why would I suggest that we picture it this way? Well, because this is the context that Jesus tells the parable in. In the previous chapter, remember, Peter asks, what then will there be for us? A question that we're all tempted to ask. I give 10% of my income to the church. What is my reward going to be? I give up my time on the weekends to go help serve less fortunate people in our community. What is my reward going to be? I avoid all of these sins and vices that my coworkers or neighbors are steeped in. What will my reward be? I pray earnestly and effectively for A, B, and C. What is my reward going to be? We all want to know, is there going to be some kind of a reward? Is there going to, are we going to get what we deserve from the life that we live? And so in the previous chapter, Jesus tells Peter and the disciples that anyone who made a sacrifice for his sake would receive back a hundredfold in return. Like, yes, you've given up a lot to follow me. You've given up lots, plenty. You've sacrificed income. You've sacrificed relationships. And the reality is you're going to get paid back a hundredfold, Jesus says. And then he goes on to tell a story where the people who sacrificed the most came out on par with those who just snuck in. How do you think this made the disciples feel? They're like, all right, good. So Jesus, he's assured us that we are going to get paid in full, that we're going to be paid back for all the sacrifice. And then he tells a story where everyone gets paid the same amount, regardless of how much you sacrificed in your life. And so the end of this parable Jesus has the landowner ask this rhetorical question. Are you envious because I am generous? Well, how would you answer that question? Probably something like, yes, I am. Because as much as possible, people should get what they deserve. And it just doesn't seem fair that you would give everyone the same reward at the end of the day. But grace isn't about working out the math. It's not about deserving or not deserving. It's about a landowner who is so ecstatic that the harvest is finally in, that he throws caution to the wind and from his abundance blesses everyone abundantly and equally right across the board. Miroslav Volf has this great quote. He says, we often treat God's gifts as payment for services rendered, but when we do, we fundamentally misconstrue God's relationship to us and mistreat God's gifts. God is not an employer, not even a very generous employer. God is a giver. Now, a few weeks ago, our pastoral team sent out these packets, uh, prayer packs during the season of Lent to encourage you uh, to pray along, a, a similar prayer along with the rest of the community and some objects that will help uh, symbolize some of the themes that we're talking about in these parables. And so the object this week is actually printed on the card itself. It's a little bunch of grapes, uh, but we're also encouraging you to maybe find a piece of fruit that you have in your house and set that in that prominent place. Or maybe walk when you're going around walking and praying, you could eat the fruit as a reminder of the story of the vineyard and the work that goes into this harvest. 
And the prayer that we're encouraging you to pray this week is, may I have the vision to see this day and the work that comes with it as a gift. So we can think about the work that we do in the home, out of the home, as well as the hard work of following Jesus some days, that it's all a gift. Now, before we close the book on this parable, I have to point out what Matthew says happened immediately afterward. So the parable ends with Jesus' words, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And chapter 20 continues. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. All of these parables of grace are shared while Jesus was intentionally walking his way to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. See, when Jesus said the last will be first, he didn't say this as a detached observer. He said it as someone who was prepared to live out his own teaching until his dying breath. Writing about this season that we find ourselves in, Brennan Manning says, Lent is a time of dying to self in order to rise to newness of life with Christ. And as we continue through our own journey of Lent, we remember that the one who would be mocked and flogged and crucified would also be raised to life. In just a moment, we're gonna wrap up our service and it'll be a time for you to join in our neighbor's post-service discussion. If you're just joining us maybe for the first time or you've been joining for a while but have never participated in our neighbor's groups, we'd invite you to do that. You can log on via the link that'll be in the comments right now. And for those who are part of a regular neighbor's group, I hope you have a great check-in and some good conversation about this morning's theme. But before we sign off, let us pray. God, we acknowledge that there are certain ways that we see life that need to be challenged by your gospel, your good news. There are certain ways that we think life should go. And then you come in and you tell a parable, you tell these stories that are just so hard for us to believe sometimes, but they challenge us to rethink your love and your grace and your kingdom. And so God, I pray that the words of this parable would echo in our hearts and minds this week. May you remind us as we think about it, about how much you love us and how you want to lavish your grace, your abundance on each one of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Peace to you.